Okay, we're back. Hello to all of you. It's uh, Anthony Scaramucci. Welcome to the podcast. I hope you've been enjoying these weekly podcasts. My goal is doing them is to really try to give you a glimpse inside how things really work both professionally and personally, uh, to tell you who we really are, stripping off all the varnish and polish, and really talk about the ups and downs of success, not just the sanitized version of success that you sometimes read about. Uh, success, as you know, takes a lot of hard work. Uh, it's a uh, teeth grinding experience. There's anxiety, but it's also very rewarding. The journey is very rewarding. Uh, and just to refresh everybody's memory, I'm the founder of Skybridge Capital. I'm also a Fox News and Fox Business contributor. Uh, alongside of my good friend, Gary Kaminsky, we host the iconic Wall Street Week program, which I have to entice my podcast guests into coming on. So just a reminder, Wall Street Week, it's on Friday nights at 8 o'clock. We do a replay on Saturday and Sunday morning at 9 a.m. on the Fox Business Channel. I've written three books, The Little Book of Hedge Funds, Goodbye, Gordon Gecko. Now, millennials, Alan, they don't even know what, who Gordon Gecko is. I, I honestly got Isn't that amazing? But anyway, he was an avatar of greed in the 1980s. Uh, so I'm dating myself. And my new book, which just came out this week, is called Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole, How Entrepreneurs Turn Failure into Success. Uh, somebody said on one of these shows, it's at finer bookstores. It's even at the less fine bookstores, okay? And please buy it before it ends up on the 50% discount rack or in my basement. I want to switch over to my guest. Okay, he is the, uh, what are you doing now? You, you're, you're basically running Time Magazine, right? Well, now. I'm the, you, you I am over the, for the chief more. content officer for Time, Inc., which means I oversee all our editorial right. operations, Time, Fortune, Money, right. Sports Illustrated, the whole mess. So I want to, I want to, I want to read out, this is uh, the legendary Alan Murray, who, you know, it's interesting because we all have different, uh, aspirations in life. I have been a closet journalist my whole life. You told me that, by the way, at that first lunch that we had. You know, you're actually more of a journalist. Well, you're a little are. out of the closet now, yeah, Anthony. Yeah, I'm out of the closet. I'm, I'm not really a television host. I just play one on TV. So let's list your jobs, though. You were the deputy managing editor of the Wall Street Journal. You were the CNBC Washington bureau chief. You were president of Pew Research. Tell our uh, listeners what Pew Research is. Pew Research uh, Center is a great organization that does research on political and social issues. A lot of it is polling, uh, but they do uh, other types as well, and has really become the gold standard for information about political, social trends. But nonpartisan. I think that's important to point out to people. So if you hear it from Pew Research, it's probably unfiltered, unvarnished. It's sort of like the Congressional Budget Office, the way they try to... You know, know, the most disturbing thing about this world we live in is that that we have no agreed-upon facts. Everybody is not only uh, uh, taking their own opinion, but they're taking their own facts. The Pew Research Center is one of the few organizations left that has respect on both sides of the aisle as a presenter of facts. Let's stick on that for one second. So basically someone's making a thesis or a proposition and then they're trying to find supporting evidence that probably is skewed to their point of view. An awful lot of the research that goes on these days is done to is done to uh, is done to support someone's advocacy. Do you think that happens in polling? In some polls, I think it probably does. Yeah, uh, interesting. Okay. Well, so now you're the chief content officer of Time Inc. as you mentioned, but you were the editor of Fortune magazine, and. Just to show the book here, The Wall Street Journal, Essential Guide to Management, 
And you wrote this a few years ago, so this is probably three and a half, four years old? A little older than that. Older I think that. it came out maybe, well, I've been gone from the journal now for four over four years, so it's probably six, five, six years old. All right, so you know, uh, but it's but it's enduring. Big, it's still available on Amazon. You know, and a big <laughs> plug for this book because every time I speak at a college, law school, or a business school, I recommend the book because I'm just going to read you quickly the contents. Okay, management, leadership, motivation, people, strategy, execution, teams, financial literacy. Change or dealing with change, a big component of our business life, going global, ethics, and managing yourself, which is a big component to your life success. And so this is a book, if you're a millennial out there or a student, I heartily recommend you go on Amazon and buy Alan's book. Uh, I think you'll find it to be a good primer on what goes on in the real world. Okay, so uh, the way we've run this before is we talk about uh, what drives people? So uh, I always like starting with typical questions of where did you grow up? How did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about your family of origin. Uh, so uh, I, I, I grew up mostly in Chattanooga, Tennessee, but uh, my, my father was a salesman for Westinghouse. Remember Westinghouse? Sure. There was a, such a company yeah. once upon a time. Uh, they, they, uh, and they moved him around from town to town. Westinghouse uh, was Pittsburgh-based, though, right? Or it was no? Pittsburgh-based. He yeah. started in Pittsburgh. I was born in Ohio, but by the time I was about uh, nine years old, we moved to Tennessee, and I spent the rest. I, I grew up there. So uh, I don't pick up an accent from Tennessee, though. So I, I have it when I go back. Yeah, but we okay. Yeah, good for you. Right, you cleanse it up when you come up north. So uh, do you remember CBL and Associates? Of course. That, yeah. You know, no. In Leavitt? fact. Uh, w- one of the uh, one of the first stories I broke in my first job at the Chattanooga Times was about uh, CBL, and they were very angry at me, and they threatened to. They ran shopping malls, sure, and they were angry at me for breaking the story and and pulled all the Chattanooga Times newspaper boxes out of all their shopping malls. Oh wow! Because I had broken the story earlier than they wanted wow. the story out. Yeah. So that was an yeah. early lesson for me about the power of of, of business and and their efforts to Amazing. control the press. You've been a journalist since you were age nine. That's so tell, true. So tell us that. Tell tell us how, how that came about. It, it started before I went to Tennessee. We lived in it, we lived outside of Pittsburgh on a on a street called Outlook Drive. And I'd walk up and down the street and ask people about, you know, their visiting relatives and their lost cats and what, and take it all down and then had a little mimeograph machine and would make a sheet, put a few jokes on it and sell it to them for a, a nickel apiece and called it the Outlook Outlook. Uh, and then after I'd been doing it for a few months, we moved to Tennessee and we lived on Lookout Mountain, which was great sure. from a branding Beautiful. standpoint. I could go from Outlook Outlook to Lookout Outlook and sure. I kept doing it there. Charlie so I've, I've been committed. It's a little disturbing, actually. You know, I, I, I feel like I became a journalist before I had time to think about it and make a, a, a rational decision. So, so uh, you know, we had somebody on our podcast in uh, uh, Wall Street Week, Byron Ween, who I know yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, good man. He said something to me once that really stuck with me. He said, it, it's what you're doing from age 9 to 19 that you really love is what you should try to do in your adult That's life. That's interesting. Because... because there's something seminal that happens between that nine to nine while the concrete is that is that journalism no I think for you? that I, I, this is this is a little different but Facebook I, someone did uh, uh, some Facebook research that showed that the baseball team you fought that if uh, if a team won the World Series when you were eight years old or nine years old uh, that then you're more likely to follow them for the rest of your life yeah. so it, yeah. it it's a, it's an important 
time in life where a lot of lifelong loyalties are are formed. There's no question. So, so, so for me, that was the Mets. They won the World Series in '69. They went into the World Series in '73 when I was 10. Unfortunately, they lost to the Oakland A's. It was heartbreaking. Uh, and they've been breaking my heart ever since. Ever by since. That way. Yeah, yeah. So for well, one year. That, that is the age. So, so what, what drives you, though? Because, like, you know, and I know you're, and I'm not here to just, you know, puff at you, but your resume is extraordinary for a journalist. I mean, you've worked in print. You've worked in television. You've worked in think tank-orientated places like Pew Research. And so, so what's the mechanism no, I, that's driving you? I, I love to write. So that's certainly part of it. But, but I think what drives someone to be a journalist and what drove me to be a journalist is just the opportunity to meet new people, do new things. I mean, over the course of my career, I've gotten to do all sorts of things and meet all sorts of people and, and be in places where I really had no business being. But as a journalist, you, you, it, it's, it's the constant lifelong learning that comes from being a journalist that I th- I love and, but why, and still love. But but I would say your career has mostly been focused on business journalism. And then you ultimately took over big things. But you really started as a business so journalist. So when, that- when it, it, you know, I was in college <laughs> in the 1970s, which is not a great time for uh, the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was studying English. I wasn't studying economics. But I came out of college and I felt like if I wanted to write about and understand what was going on in society, I better figure out what's going on in the economy. Mm-hmm. So I went to graduate school at the London School of Economics yeah, I remember that. Uh, uh, after graduating to get some background. And that's what got me into business and economic reporting. So, I mean, this is a little bit of a segue, but I, and it's a little bit of a jump, but I want you to really take us through it. You're, you're in print, you're typing, it goes to a copy editor, and then it ends up on a big, long spool of paper, and it prints out, <laughs> right? That's how you started. Right. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. No, at the Chattanooga so, Times, they still had, they were still using hot type when I first got there. I hot, mean, this you're, right. you're hot type. I don't want to, I don't want to date myself here. I'm yeah, but, I'm actually but, a very young man. I, I and you look young, but <laughs> I, I, I just want to take millennials. We get a ton of millennials that are that are, uh, are listening to us or will watch this on Facebook Live or Periscope, and so I want you to give them some historical context. You're typing. You're probably typing on a typewriter. When I started, an IBM Selectric. Uh, or not like even that. an IBM Selectric. Yeah. When I started at the Wall Street Journal, we were using manual typewriters, and you and you did have a big roll of paper, and uh, the the term cut and paste, which is now of course built into our computers, referred to the process we went through. Because if you said, "Oh, that third paragraph really belongs in the fifth paragraph," you would take some scissors, cut out the third paragraph cut a hole for it after the fifth paragraph and paste it and in you'd place. you take some Elmer's glue or some white paste. Yes, exactly. And, and put paste it, right it together like and, then and, take it, uh, and then take it to the copy desk and put it on a spike. So, you know, the term spike, it was right. all these things which uh, shortly after I started became obsolete were still, were, were still in play. Most people in journalism never made the transition to electric typewriters. We went straight from manuals to word processors. Okay, so... So that, that, that made a big change, right? Because you got Huge. a little bit more efficient, a little bit more productive. Uh, but the world is still changing now, right? Now, I, I, there's something I remember I'm going to share with you I want to get your reaction to. I remember the ribbon-cutting ceremony for the College Point New York Times multicolor facility uh, <laughs> that took place in 1999-2000, yeah. where 
Mayor Giuliani was cutting the ribbon, and the New York Times said, okay, this is our state-of-the-art facility. And imagine this. You're used to black and white paper for the last 150 years, but we're now going to give you a four-color process front page Big deal. of the New York Times. Big deal, yeah. And it 15, was also— 16 short years ago, Alan. Uh, you know, it was also uh, around that time, sort of uh, uh, early 80s, that the Wall Street Journal went to uh, satellite transmission— uh, so they created 13 printing plants, and they would send the pages by satellite to each of the printing plants. That was a huge deal at the time. Uh, Which increased your distribution and ability to sub- uh, subscription and be able to sell and, and so it, it enabled us it around those It enabled cities. us to provide timely national delivery of, of the newspaper. Okay, so, so I want you to take us to where we are today. Okay, we're talking a little about the history, and so now you've got unbelievable technology and minute-to-minute capability. So how are things changed? What's different about You know, I mean, there's so many changes, it's almost hard to go through them all. But let me tell you what the biggest thing is. And we made the transition from print to websites with people reading on computers. But then the more recent transition from websites to mobile devices and social media has been really the profound one. Because... If you think back to when I started in journalism, we almost thought of ourselves as artists. We would create great stories, and it was somebody else's job to figure out Curated, how to get those yeah, stories to the it. audience. Yeah, you know, they would. Uh, we never thought about how you bring in readers. Today, if you're a journalist, uh, you're involved in social media, you were cultivating your audience. That was almost considered, I mean, even... Fifteen years ago, kind of dirty. It's like, class. oh, I'm not going to pimp my own copy. Right. Uh, uh, but now, to be successful, you really have to be. You have to play an active role in building your own audience. And I think of all the changes that we've uh, seen in journalism in the last. 10, 20 years, that's the biggest one, that understanding that you have to build market. I mean, you know this. Yeah. You do this as mm-hmm. as a uh, as a fund manager. But it's become, in some ways, the essential skill of journalism. Mm-hmm. Who am I writing for? How yeah. do I find those people? How do I push my content to those people? How yeah, do so I bring a, them there's to There's almost me? like you're, you're, as a journalist, and probably true in most businesses now, you're your own brand manager. Absolutely. And you're trying to figure out now how to access Absolutely. people. Absolutely. But but I I just want and I want to get your reactions. And I have a, a ton of other questions. But I want you to just uh, so so because of this. Uh, and I only took one course in journalism back at Tufts. And I remember the whole Columbia School of Journalism mantra of objectivity and checking sources and make sure you have two sources on a story before you go with something. But uh, the front page supposedly objective news, first three paragraphs written a certain way, and then more content below. And then if you wanted to go to the editorial page, you could offer up your opinion. And again, I'm not, I mean, I can give you my own opinion, but but, I, but it seems like, I mean, the general public now views the news as coming to them in a skew. It could be coming to them right-leaning from, say, Fox. It could be coming to them left-leaning from, say, MSNBC. Again, you know, Fox, in my opinion, I work there, I think it's pretty fair and balanced. If you look Pew Research Studies, there's a lot of Democrats and independents that watch it, and there's a lot of Democrats on the air. But I think that's the perception. Do you think the perception is reality, Alan, or do you think uh, Look, I, I has think it changed? I, oh, it's changed so much. I mean, you go back 30 years ago. People talk about the mainstream media. And what, what strikes me about that is you go back 30 years ago, and the news was really created and delivered by a pretty small group of people. 
who uh, tended to work kind of near where we're sitting right now and spend too much time having lunch together. And they, you know, it was like three networks yeah. and a couple Edward of wire Murrow, services Walter and a couple Cronkite. of newspapers. And that was right. it. Right. And they really did control the news. Today, anybody and everybody is a journalist. If yeah. you want to start a blog, yeah. it, you can do it without ever getting out of your pajamas. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, you just open up your computer screen and start it. So, so the problem is that it's become such a varied and diverse industry that it's hard to talk about general standards. Uh, at, at, at Time Inc., we still have pretty strong standards, but compete with people. Let, let me just give you an example. Uh, uh, as you say, I spent most of my career in, in the business world, but now one of my responsibilities is to oversee what happens at People. Well, People is a celebrity-based magazine yeah. that has very high standards of accuracy and fairness. Right. And it's competing against people who could care less. Oh, yeah, I no mean, question. walk into any supermarket and look yeah. at the headlines. Yeah. You, you know, how many of those are, are you know, it's probably... 30% of them are true, and you don't know which ones. But if it's in people, you know. So, uh, I mean, the same is true of time, the same is true. So there are publications like ours that have real standards, but you're competing against against people who have so, but, very so, different standards. So, so you've kept the standards, but you are making tremendous innovative changes at time. I mean, Absolutely. I'm, I'm a, I have to confess this to you, my, uh, in high school, uh, one of the gifts I got at graduation was a, a weekly subscription to Time Magazine. So I am, for 34 years, a subscriber to Time Magazine. You are a great man. And, and, and I, also, <laughs> I also grew up in a town that had Publishers Clearinghouse. I don't know if you know what that yeah, is, yeah, but the course. lottery. So my best friend, Paul Montoya, who's been on our podcast, his mom worked there. And so when I went to college, she gave me a list of magazines that I could buy for pennies. And I subscribed to Forbes and Fortune and Sports Illustrated, of course, one of my all-time favorite magazines. And so many of them are in your portfolio yes. of magazines. And some of them are getting thinner. Yeah. Some of them are getting thicker in terms of their content and their advertising. So tell us why. What's changing? Well, uh, readership for magazines overall is definitely declining. Uh, I mean, there's still a lot of us out there. I, for instance, am, am my during the week, all my information comes off my mobile phone. I'm just a I'm an omnivore for information, but it's all done through my mobile phone because I'm different places and I'm moving around and I'm trying to do when I have a spare five minutes waiting for someone at a restaurant, whatever. So that's one form of you're trying to get quick bits of information on your mobile phone. And we should talk about that in a minute. And, and I, let me tell you that people think of Time as a magazine company. We produce uh, between 1,200 and 1,500 pieces of content every day, digital content every day, videos, stories. Mm -hmm. so, so it's a huge digital machine. But there are times on weekends, I, I revert completely to paper. I read the Wall Street Journal, Weekend Wall Street Journal. I read the Weekend New York Times. I read all of, all of my magazines. I kind of like it. So there are still people like that. Young people, mostly digital. Okay, so this is another question. It's interesting to me. I sort of feel like I'm losing something from the phone. I'm just interested in your reaction to this and how you guys are innovating around it. And I'll give you this example because I guess I'm an old fogey now. I like seeing the hard copy of the paper so I can see the way the editor is framing the stories and also the aesthetics of the paper, what's important to the newsroom, what's important to the editor, what's important to the style person. I find it very hard 
to figure that out from here. Yeah, you do it in you do it in different ways. I mean, we write a lot of, and I subscribe to a lot of email newsletters. You know, that have where someone is curating information for you and telling you what they think is most important. Uh, you know, in the media space now, Joe uh, uh, Joe uh, Pompeo is doing that. We do it for in the business area. So. Mm-hmm. I, I think they're, f- they're for like that. A l- awful lot of people are consuming their news over Facebook, where the editor is, in effect, their friends. It's, it, they count on people they know the curate to push the them the stuff that's important, and that replaces the editor of the front page of the Ma- newspaper. Amazing. So how are you, how are you, how are you adapting to all of this? Because you're sitting on the top of a colossal brand. So how are you adapting? You have to be extremely flexible, and you have to uh, keep – keep your eye on the consumer. If, if, if you know, like I now write a daily newsletter for business people called yeah, the, the CEO, CEO daily. I love it. I get and, it every day. And uh, it's, and I write a, uh, an S you can call it an essay at the top of it, 300 words long. Mm-hmm. I know that the people reading that at seven o'clock in the morning are very pressed for time. They're looking for a quick bit of wisdom. They are not looking for a long read. They're not looking for elegiac prose. And if I go over 300 words, which is ridiculously short for a newspaper, right? If I go over 300 words, I'll hear from them. They'll say, hey, you know, keep it tight. So, you know, that's, uh, that's what they want. They're, they're, it's, they're rushed. They're trying to get some information. They what want do, quick bits of information. What do, what do millennials want? Like, what's your research on that? What's your personal view? How do you capture the imagination of the millennials and get them to read your stuff? Yeah, so I think uh, millennials like authenticity. And so you see... You know, the the old television version of kind of scripted news, yeah, somebody no reading question. a teleprompter no in question. front of a camera that they right. that you know as a savvy viewer, they may not even know what they're saying. Somebody else wrote it for them, right. you know. That kind of stuff doesn't work very right. well for millennials. And that's why you see clever organizations like Vice or Vox or or even BuzzFeed figuring out how to reach the millennial. But it's not that it's not that hard. Let me tell you, in Fortune, at Fortune, I, I've been at Fortune for two years. In a year and a half, we cut the average age of the Fortune digital readers by a decade just by producing, you know, short, uh, snappy content with good headlines that worked well on digital and made people want to share it. You can, you're, you're, you can get there. Gra- I mean, I, I don't know if it's you and you deserve 100% credit for it, but, you know, I've been, again, reading Fortune for 30 years. Your graphics have become fantastic. So do you, did you rebuild that? Did you redesign that? I some mean, really I good graphics people it's at fantastic the because yeah, what, they, what's happening with your graphics is it looks like the stuff that millennials are used to looking at on their phone or on their apps or... So it, it, it draws them in. It draws me in, and I'm not yeah, a millennial. And look, this has been another hard adjustment for journalists because, again, we sort of thought of ourselves as craftsmen and artisans, and we like to, to craft longer stories, and, you know, it, we are in love with our words. And a lot of times you're dealing with a reader who's just looking for a, a, a quick bit of insight, a quick bit of information, maybe a bit of humor, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a, a, a single number that sort of helps them understand their world better. And, oh. and so that's why I say what we really have to do most of all is keep focused on our readers. It's not about what we want to do. It's, yeah. about, what about, it's about what they want from us. Well, another thing you're doing well at Fortune, though, at least for me as one of your consumers, is that I feel like I get business strategy. I get insight to CEOs around the world. And then I'm also getting a lot of content about what's happening 
in 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 business in general. For, Fortune but, has fabulous access to the people who are running the largest companies in the world. Uh, it it is you know this is one of the one of the things I love about being at Time Inc. Uh, the 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 changes in journalism are challenging, but the brands are just unbelievable. I mean, Fortune is the uh, most emotionally connected brand with people who run large businesses. Sports Illustrated mm-hmm. may... may Love it. It is, you know, ESPN does a fabulous job bringing an audience, but if you walk into a top athlete's home, you're not going to see ESPN hanging on the wall. You're going to see the time that that athlete was on the cover of Sports no, Illustrated. No, but also, but it's just such, such a behind-the-scenes of what really happens in sports. And by the way, Sports Illustrated is a great management digest. Because you learn so much from these athletic coaches about how to run a team or how to think about a team. Or the greatest athletes are usually people that can subordinate their egos, you know, like they can t- yeah. take, take the ball and pass it. Uh, before I, I switch gears and talk about the economy, I feel we're in an age of information overload. Yep. I feel like insight is very different from information yep. in the sense that you're looking at the information and providing insight. How do you coach new journalists? Because you're phenomenal at this to create information overload, put it in the funnel, and crystallize it into insight for the end user. How how would you coach somebody to do that? Well, it starts with integrity, right? You Mm -hmm. have to uh, have a respect for facts, and you have to have a respect for your reader. So it starts there, um, uh, and and flexibility, uh, understanding uh, uh, the different ways uh, that you get to the reader. But, But I think... Uh, I think ultimately uh, what, you're, what you're trying to do as a journalist is, first of all, have knowledge. And, and I think actually this may be an important change that we're spending a minute on because there used to be this notion of the general assignment reporter who would be, uh, who might cover anything at any time. And we still have a lot of people like that in the business of journalism. But to get true insight, you need to have some expertise that has developed over time from really covering something deeply. And if you look at our best people, they're the ones who have developed some insight out of knowledge Mm -hmm. and experience. Mm -hmm. So what I advise young journalists is find the area you love, find the area you care about, and spend the time to actually learn something about it. It doesn't mean you have to get a degree or go to school or something like that, but dig in so you have a body of knowledge that you can draw on as part of your journalism. Very valuable. Let's switch gears and talk about the economy. So what do you, what do you think is going on? What's your outlook? Well, I'm, I am in this funny place where I feel torn because I spend a lot of time talking to people who run companies who say they've never seen anything like the technological transformation that's happening right now. So that's a positive. That's a positive. I mean, the, this combination of machine learning, artificial intelligence, mobile computing, sensors on everything, vast amounts of data that gets analyzed and spits out insights mm-hmm. um, is changing the fundamentals of every business and should make them more productive in the long run. But then you look at the uh, government statistics and productivity is in the tank and growth is very growth, which is driven by productivity. I mean, there are only two ways to grow an economy. Is one is put more people in it. The other is to make the people who are in it more productive. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so uh, 
as long as productivity is in the tank, growth is going to be very, very slow. So I, I, I don't know if that's because we're mismeasuring it and maybe we're growing faster than we think we are. Or is it because there's a delay that these technologies are will, you know, this happened with the first wave of the computer revolution that right. that in the 80s there was concern that we weren't getting the productivity boost and then bam, uh, the 90s happened. So, so maybe it's just a little early and we're still at the trial stage and we are on the verge of something big. But I, I find it very perplexing that everything I hear about the introduction of technology is so exciting, but what you see in the government statistics is so disappointing. So do you think some of it is related to government policy? Or do you think some of it is just related to the demographics? What, like, what would you what would you say? And, and I'll preface well, it by saying this: Robert Bartley, who I know you know, oh, yeah. the, the old uh, yeah. Wall Street Journal editorial chief, he wrote a great book when I was graduating from uh, uh, college. It was called Seven Fat Years." I don't know if you remember the book. Yeah, of course. He talked about the Reagan Revolution. He talked yeah. about the policies that were put in place to help stimulate that growth. So, so if you had to have a pizza pie in front of you and said, "Okay," Some of our slowdown and growth is related to blank, blank, and blank. How would the pie get cut up? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good way of looking at it. Uh, look, um, uh, there's clearly a policy piece to it. Uh, we, the, if you look at the current issue of Fortune magazine, it's covered in red tape, uh, and we have a, an in-depth story on how much regulation has. Uh, accelerated in the U.S. over the course of the last eight years. Some of it was a reaction to 2008. Uh, so they're the big ones that we know about, um, but they're also uh, like the Affordable Care Act, um, but there are also a lot of smaller examples of, of regulatory uh, overreach. That clearly has a slowing effect on the economy. Uh, so, I mean, you talk to a lot of people. So when you say to somebody that's putting these regulations in place, you say, listen, you know, a lot of the people that you're regulating are upset. It's slowing down their ability to hire incremental people. It's it's not necessarily making anybody more safe or whatever you're trying to achieve, but it's having a slowdown or recessionary effect on the economy. What do they say to you? Oh, first of all, I don't think those conversations are happening as right. much as okay, they so have in the past or as much as they should. I mean, the right. remarkable thing about the Obama administration, in, in my view, is it was the first administration in my lifetime and probably the first administration after World War II that in the first years, at least, could not find a single uh, uh, business person to put in a cabinet level position. No. I mean, they find they had three commerce no, sec- they had three yeah, commerce secretaries in a row, none of whom had any no. real experience eight, eight, in commerce. Only eight percent of their cabinet is related to business. Yeah, I, I, I hosted a, an event for the Wall Street Journal in two thousand and nine, and we had Christine Romer. We had a bunch of CEOs, mm-hmm. and Christine Romer, who was the head of the Council of of Economic Advisors, mm-hmm. and I asked her this question in front of these uh, business people, and she said, "Well." That's really not fair. I mean, I've taught economics my whole life, as if teaching economics is in any way comparable to the pressures you feel when you're running one of these large businesses. So, and and frankly, I worry it's not going to get better. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at this election and the populist, uh, mm-hmm. the populist political trends on both sides, you know, mm-hmm. this is the again the first election in my lifetime where, in my view, I know you disagree with this, and you can. We can argue about this, but but I believe it's the first election in my lifetime where there isn't really a candidate that is uh, uh, bringing forward the agenda, at least roughly, of business or at least of big business. 
Um, there's some things about. I, I, I actually don't disagree with that, okay. and, and I think that's the reason why your magazine's brand, Fortune 100 CEOs, have not endorsed Mr. Trump, and it's not clear to me that she's doing it either, Ms. Secretary Clinton. Um, I think uh, the imagination that Mr. Trump's trying to capture is actually a disaffected. He, he, he's actually yeah. his narrative is the narrowing middle class and the working class has now become the working poor. And how do you how do you li- fix that? How do you fix that? Now you you could agree with those policies or not. Some of them are very clever. I think some of them are not really being espoused as clearly as they could be. Uh, but I'm interested in general. I just like to get your reaction. How do you think? The election is going. You find it shocking because I personally find the whole thing very, very shocking. The, I, I, the I spent mo- attacks and the you know I, lack I spent, of. I spent most of my career in Washington. Yeah, I left Washington in two thousand and five. I felt at the time you look too I young left- to have spent that much time in Washington. <laughs> it's like an age machine. Washington. I felt <laughs> at the time I left that I had watched several decades of a downhill slide in the ability of people of goodwill in Washington to get things done, and that was in 2005. And here we are in 2016, and it's even worse. In fact, I, it's it's much worse. I have a hard uh, time even on television. I'm, I'm I'm on as a Republican. I view myself as a pragmatist. The person is screaming at me these uh, liberal talking points, and I'm like, okay, you know, time, time out a second. Let's take the emotion out of it, and let's look at policies that work. Let's not focus on left and right. Let's focus on right or wrong. It, it, you interest, can't get people it, to do interesting that. theory there that that I will attribute to Dove uh, Seedman. Do you know him? He's yeah, somebody right, you should yeah. have on your great, great guy. And he's been to Salt. And he wrote the book How. And yeah, he's a phenomenal guy. So and he's really I was close having the, to Tom Friedman. I was having this conversation with him a, a few days ago, and 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 he made the point that uh, that. Uh, and, and uh, David Hume wrote this in one mm-hmm. of his books that your moral uh, judgment declines with distance. So you know you can have very strong moral feelings about the people who are in your family and in your house and that you're close to, but as, as it gets further away, you're less. You have traditionally been less inclined to have strong, have those That's kinds of make so. those kinds of moral judgments. Right. But what technology has done is killed distance. Yeah, close Everything close is in our face. Everything up, yeah. is right there in that right. mobile phone right. that Susan's looking at right now. And and you can and, and that has accelerated and increased moral outrage. Yeah. And now we're finding yeah. all our conversations are instilled Charged. with moral judgment and it makes it impossible to have a decent conversation about And, and we're about, caricaturizing people. We're, yes. we're we're demonizing them. We're we're taking three-dimensional people that have families and love their families and are, you know, listen, you know, I'm going to get lit up by Trump supporters right now and and telling people, I don't feel Secretary Clinton is a demon. And, but I also want to tell the Secretary Clinton supporters, Donald Trump is not a demon. I've worked very closely with him. And so I find it brutal that whoever wins the election, I want to ask you your opinion about the election in a second, that we, we're, we're desecrating yeah. these people to the extent yeah, that look, it's going to make it impossible for them to do their jobs. When I was in Washington, I had the most respect for people who I thought were willing to go against their party to do something they were right. And I saw people on the left and the right do this. I saw Bob Dole do it uh, uh, on more than one occasion. I saw John McCain do it on more than one occasion. I think Bill Clinton did it in passing NAFTA, which mm-hmm. has now become a, a horror, right? Mm-hmm. But he that was a hard thing politically for him to do in 
and he did it because he, be- he believed it was right. Mm-hmm. And I happen to believe it was right. And I haven't, frankly, haven't seen any economic studies that suggest otherwise, but yeah, we, 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 we can put that I, aside. I've so. done a lot of work on NAFTA. And by the way, I think that the intentions of NAFTA were well-founded. I do think there has been some deleterious side effects of the working class. And there were opportunities to right-size and review NAFTA that perhaps needed to get done. And by the way, she, Secretary Clinton has brought up the whole trade prosecutor thing as a, as a result of, I think, and, the response and, to Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And we could have and should have uh, done a better job dealing with the people who were displaced yeah. by uh, by no. trade with Mexico or other countries. No, so No question. That, so we're, we're, we're in agreement. See, I think that there are a lot of things that we're all in agreement of if we dial down the volume a little bit and focus on it. But do you think the media is being fair to Trump? Uh, I have never in my lifetime seen a an election where the media has gone so aggressively after a candidate as in this one. Now, they at the same time, they've also made Trump possible by giving him endless airtime and headlines on the front page. And but but uh, their willingness to aggressively attack and uh, you know Jim Vandehei of Politico talked about not only not only analyzing and not only jumping on his uh, errors, but sometimes uh, seeming to do end zone dances in celebration of them. Yeah. So. Yeah, I agree with you. Is that coming from the corporate heads? Is that coming from the editor? No. Is that coming from themselves personally? Or what do you think it's coming from? Well, okay, let's talk about the personal piece of it first. It's a matter of self-selection that journalists as a group skew left of the population as a whole. Right. I mean, when you're Anthony Scaramucci and you're in, you're in college and you say, well, let's see, I could go this way and I could manage money and make a ton of money. Or I could go this way and become a journalist, which is kind of, there are too many people trying to do it and they're underpaid. How you make that, but it sounds like kind of fun and maybe I can change, you know, I can change people's behavior. How you make that decision says something about your political beliefs. So I believe among journalists, you have a a, a skew to the left. uh, I think that's fair. uh, Charlie Gasparino said that it comes from, um, primarily they're coming from upper middle-class backgrounds, too. Again, I don't know if that's true or not. That was one of his theories yeah, as well. So that's, that's, there's a little bit of collective, cases, I mean, Char- that's, collective guilt. That's not where Charlie comes from, no, but no, I guess no, that's no, why exactly. he, Charlie's, trying to, tra- Charlie's trying to uh, heighten his uh, exceptionalism. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but I, but there's, Are you going to get tweeted probably... out if Charlie's listening? You know that. Right? <laughs> I'm please, sorry, Charlie. Charlie. We like Alan. There, don't go with the X-rated tweets, please. Okay. <laughs> there's probably some of that. So that's step one. But, but, but still, I mean, I've always known, I myself have voted, uh, if you looked at my voting record over the last 30 years, you would think I'm a very confused human being. I yeah. voted for Republican presidential candidates as often as I voted for Democratic presidential candidates. Probably the only consistent thread is that I seem to have a very hard time voting for anyone to serve a second term. And mm-hmm. maybe that comes from being a little too close to Washington. But, uh, uh, I, but you know, there have always been journalists who supported Republican candidates. And, of mm-hmm. course, you had the rise of Fox News. But Trump's a different animal. Uh, uh, I, I, other than Sean Hannity and you, if we call you a journalist, mm-hmm. I'd be very hard-pressed to come up with the name of a journalist who I would guess, because many journalists don't talk about their political mm-hmm. leanings, that I would guess would vote for Donald Trump. No, so I, I, I think I, this I, is I don't a, know Bill O'Reilly's view, but he has been fair to Donald Trump. Fair, yeah, but fair. W- yeah. will he, you know, will well, he at the end of the day vote for him? Who knows? He hasn't expressed, he views himself as an independent, and I've, I've I, never heard him say one way or the other, but I do think he's been fair to him. And by the way, I, what I admire about Bill is he would be fair to Secretary Clinton if she came on the show. She came on once during some uh, violent uh, demonstration in one of the inner cities to talk a little bit, but 
I find Bill to be pretty independent yeah. if you watch him. But, you know? but Charlie may be onto something in that the fact that journalists tend to uh, come from the coast and tend to come from uh, more affluent positions, probably people who don't come from affluent positions can't afford to become journalists, uh, may, may have something to do with it, too. So but, you, you, got a, you got a fascinating life, but you also have a fascinating wife. I do. And so your wife, Dr. Lori Murray, uh, is a foreign policy expert, consultant. She was the former special advisor to the president for chemical weapons. Yeah. What's I, I don't, yeah. So, no, people have said to me, uh, uh, what is it that would lead you to marry someone who's an expert in weapons of mass <laughs> destruction? <laughs> and I, I can't answer that question. Dr. You, you do kid. what you do. But she's a great example of what we were just talking about. She spent eight years in Congress working for a Republican, Nancy Kassenbaum. She yep. wasn't Republican. She wasn't Democratic. She cared about the issues. Yeah. She thought nuclear weapons were a threat to society, and she was interested in policies to reduce the threat of nuclear nuclear weapons. Amen. Uh, she left Nancy Kassebaum and went to work in the Clinton administration where she had exactly the same philosophy and helped accomplish one of the, you know, if NAFTA was the greatest bipartisan achievement of the Clinton administration, whether you like it or not, the mm -hmm. fact that he was able to reach across the aisle and get a bipartisan agreement to pass it. Uh, the second one was the chemical weapons, uh, 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 the chemical weapons treaty, which uh, Trent Lott uh, when he was leading the Senate, played a significant which role, has in, saved, and she worked on that, which so, has saved lives around the world. Right, I mean, we have to, you know, it's a life-saving thing. So, big shout out to. But Lori this is—I'll I'll make this point very quickly, but I think it's really important. At that time, you had people like Lori who were interested in the policy and who worked to take these political impulses and mold them into something that was good for the country, and that's all disappeared. That's all been blown up. How Everybody's do we get a that partisan. Back? What would Lori say? What would you say? How do we get that back? We got to get that back, Alan. Leadership. Yeah. Somebody, yeah. somebody uh, needs to. You know, uh, uh, Barack Obama said this during the campaign. Somebody needs to. Well, let me let, let me uh, quote Bob Dole. Bob Dole said, if he had been elected, he would have called the leaders of both parties to the White House on day one and said, we have to fix this. And this was. A long time ago, when it was not ago. as bad as it is now. Yeah. He said, we have to fix this, and you're going to come to the White House every day until we figure out how to fix it, yeah. because this is the single biggest problem we yeah. have. Now, right. uh, Barack right. Obama went in with that message and, by my account, spent about eight days trying to do that, and then gave up and said, okay, we'll pass health care without a single Republican yeah. vote. Yeah. Uh, a and mistake. If, and if you know him if you know him on a personal side, I, I don't know him super personally, even though we went to law school together, but... He, he doesn't like that nitty-gritty Congress thing. And probably didn't have the experience or skills to do and, it. And the presidency of the United States mm -hmm. ought not be an entry-level job. Yeah, I think that's fair, and I, and, I, and, I, and I accept that. What is a dinner conversations like, though, at home? What do you guys well, we don't spend about? a lot of time talking about weapons of mass destruction. No, you're, you're, Actually, uh, uh, surprising giving her Ph.D. in foreign policy, she is delighted about the fact that I now on every Friday bring home a People magazine. There you go. <laughs> See, that, that's perfect. Okay, that's a great way to end this. So so I, I want to thank you for coming in. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I uh, hope you'll come back. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, and uh, follow Alan Murray on Twitter. He's at Alan S. Murray. So please follow him. Thanks for being here, Alan. Great to be uh, with you. You can subscribe to this podcast on your iTunes. Uh, just go to your iPhone. If you've got questions for me, comments, ways we can make the show better, uh, potential guests that you'd like to see on the show, uh, please uh, email me at podcast at skybridgeinsights.com. 
Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Scaramucci. And Alan, once again, thank you. I really, I really do enjoy this part of my life where I do to you, and I think you're amazing at this, I'm trying to provide insight to people. Well, you're very things, good at it. As I told you, as I told you, I think uh, uh, ten years ago. Yeah, you're exactly. a closet journalist. You did tell now, me that. You're now out of the closet. Yeah, yeah. And someone said to me, "I'm a television host." I said, "No, no, I only play one on television." <laughs> okay. And with that, thank you so much.